We're in Colossians chapter 2 tonight, so please turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book. We're in Colossians chapter 2 this evening. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're so thankful for who you are and our position in you by your grace and your mercy. We ask tonight that we would understand afresh our position, the fact that we're robed in your righteousness. You've adopted us as your sons and your daughters. And through that, it would provide great protection in our lives. Would you speak through your word? Would there be clarity? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? We know there's a real enemy, so would you bind the enemy? We're thankful to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. Position and protection. Position does provide protection. And you might be saying, how so? I don't, I don't understand that. If there's a healthy marriage between a husband and a wife, that provides protection as you go through life. It, it protects you from areas of temptation. And you, and you go through life in a smoother way simply because there's health in that husband and wife relationship inside of that position. We know from the research that kids that have healthy relationships with their parents, specifically with their dads, when their dad is is in their life, it makes a big difference going forward. That position of knowing that you're a son, that you're a daughter, that you have a mom, that you have a dad, that there's that sense of, of belonging. And you might be saying, well, I didn't have that in my life. You know, I feel like that that's something that was, was missing in my life. Well, you're in a good place tonight because we're going to look at not our position necessarily as spouse or our position with our parents, but we're going to look at our position in Christ. And ultimately, that's the position that we're all longing for, to know that we're loved by God. I call it the identity stamp. If you miss this from the Lord, if you miss God stamping your identity, there's going to be a, a deep void in your life. There's going to be a deep void in my life. We look at John the disciple as he writes the Gospel of John. How did he refer to himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. He got the identity stamp. Didn't have anything to do with his dad. Didn't have anything to do with his spouse. Had everything to do with Jesus. And knowing this is the way that Jesus feels about me. This is how Jesus has showed his love to me. My identity has found in my position that I'm loved by God. And that has to go from here to here. It has to go from our heads to, to our hearts to understand what Christ has done through his grace and our faith in Christ that we're now in him, that we're accepted by him. And as Paul affirms our position in Christ, then he says this is going to protect you from false teaching. There was false teaching that was coming to this church, Colossae, in Asia Minor, that I think we face today, and the answer is our position in Christ. So, so as we're secure there, it's going to be our protection against these false doctrines that come in to the church. Verse 1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, for as many as I've not seen my face in the flesh. Paul has not seen this group of believers in Laodicea and Colossae. But he says, I have great conflict. I have great agony for you. That's what the word conflict means. He hears about the health of this church. He hears about the false teaching 
that they're facing, and it stirs him, even though he's never seen them, to the point where he prays for them and writes this letter. In verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So this is what he's praying for them. This is what he's desiring for them, that they would be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love, that their lives would be woven together in love, that they would attain to the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Do you remember what the mystery of God is? Going back from this, hey, you got it, Matthew. That's great. Matthew got it here on the front row. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the mystery of godliness. And so he's wanting the church to understand that, both of the Father and of Jesus. Here we have the phrase, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. So in Christ is hidden all of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. This church, one of the false teachings that they were facing was Gnosticism. This idea that there was deeper knowledge, deeper understanding, always the pursuit of intellectualism, also the undermining of Jesus Christ, both his humanity and his deity. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And Paul is reaffirming that inside of Christ, in him it's hidden the treasures of all wisdom and understanding. Now wisdom is knowledge applied. It's really having the information, but then also applying that information. And I think there's a tendency that happens to the Church of Colossae and for us as well to go, well, that's great that you understand Christ for salvation, but in order to get through life, you really have to look outside of Jesus. Maybe you felt that pressure. If you're really going to figure out marriage, if you're really going to figure out parenting, if you're really going to do well in the workforce or have a good education, then, then well, you're going to have to look outside of Christ. And what we're finding here is that inside of Christ is all wisdom and all knowledge. It's in him. It's our position in him. It's our relationship with him. Why would the wisdom and knowledge be hidden? Is it hidden for the sake that you're never going to find out the meaning? that you're never going to get to the wisdom, that you're never going to get to the knowledge. It's hidden for the sake of pursuit so that we would have to pursue Christ, that we'd have to pursue this wisdom, that we'd have to pursue the knowledge. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. Because if you didn't want to know, you go, what's this crazy story that Jesus is talking about? I don't get it. But if you did want to know, you'd stop and think about it, and you'd come to understand the spiritual truth inside of that physical story. He was testing the hearer, saying, how much are you going to pursue? And that's why this wisdom is hidden inside of the Lord. There's a story of a man who was an art collector, also very wealthy. He was looking through a, a book, and there was one picture that caught his attention. It was a book of famous artwork. And he went to those that work for him, and he says, look, you have to find this painting and buy it. No matter what the cost, I've got to have this in my collection. They look for three and a half months, and they come back to him, and they say, we found the painting, but you can't buy it. He's like, why? Why can't I buy it? What's the story here? He said, because it's in your warehouse. He'd already owned it all along. And so many times, that's it with Christ. The wisdom's there. We have the relationship with Christ, 
but we're not tapping into it. We're not enjoying it. We're not pursuing it. In verse 4, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So he's saying, look, this is where it's at. It's in Christ. Lest someone is able to come in and persuade you with slick talking, deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So Paul's saying, I haven't seen you. I'm not with you physically, but my spirit's with you. My heart's with you. Guys, I'm, I'm with you. I'm praying for you. And I want to see you in good order, and I want to see you continuing steadfast in your faith in Christ. He doesn't want this church to move away from Christ. Here are the key verses in this chapter. Verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? Stop and think about it for just a moment. There's humility in receiving Christ. We understood that he was our savior, that there was a need for him. Normally there's some desperation. There's faith. You get to the very end of it, it's pretty simple. We receive Christ in simplicity. Humility, desperation, faith. And Paul's saying, now as you have received him, so walk in him. God does want us walking. He wants us progressing. He wants us growing. He wants us more close to himself. But the way that we're to do that is in the same way that we began, and that's in humility and faith. Don't complicate it. Don't get off track. As we walk with the Lord over a period of time, it's easy to trust in our own works, to trust in our own efforts. Okay, Lord, I read my Bible today. I went to Wednesday night study. I was so tired, but I went anyway. God, I'm tithing now. I'm giving the first fruits to to the work of the Lord. I'm following you, and so now I'm I'm trusting that you're going to give me some kind of kickback. Is that how we got saved? That's not how we got saved. We got saved in that beauty of grace, that beauty of trusting the Lord. So that's how we walk with God. We wake up and say, Lord, I know myself, and I know you. I'm not going to ask what I deserve from you today. I'm trusting in your goodness and would your grace work afresh in my life. So now we're walking in the same manner that we have received Christ. And the temptation for the church of Colossae was to set that aside. Well, that, that's simple stuff. I've, I've grown, grown past the, the simple stuff and now I've got to move to something beyond Christ. And Paul's bringing them back to that point. As they walk as they began, verse 7, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. These are very visual words. You think about being rooted in Christ. The roots are where we get nourishment. The root is where it provides strength and stability. So our hearts, our soul, the very fabric of who we are, it's going deep into the character and the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we find nourishment. Then to be built up in the faith, to be growing in the faith. You picture a building that's being built up to the point where we're abounding. We're abounding with what? We're abounding in thanksgiving. But there's something threatening this, this walk with Christ. It says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. The word cheat is to spoil. You think about 
some stuff that you have in your refrigerator. It was good at one point. Now it's not so good. It's spoiled in the refrigerator. Produce, so good, but it's got a short lifespan, doesn't it? Before long, it spoils. And Paul says, someone's going to try to come and take away from you this intimacy with Christ, this simplicity with Christ, and to cheat you. And the way is through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For the church of Colossae, it was Gnosticism. To say, well, Jesus, he really wasn't human. He didn't have a physical body. He was just a spirit that walked here, here on the earth, taking away from his humanity. But also they would take away from his deity, declaring that he wasn't God until the Garden of, of Gethsemane. So it was an attack upon the character of Jesus Christ, the theology of Christ, who Christ is, that Christ is God and he's also man, the God-man. And is there philosophy alive and well in the world today that's attacking who Jesus is? There's a lot of people that have intellectual ideas about Christ. This is intellectualism, robbing away from a vibrant walk in Christ that are saying things like, I really accept Christ as a good teacher. And a lot of people really are enamored with the teachings of Christ and the way that Christ lived, the kind of compassion that he showed, the kindness, and they want to live the life of Christ, but they're not willing to accept the work of Christ upon the cross, that Jesus died for their sins and rose again, and he's God. You hear all kinds of people that really don't know the Lord, that aren't anywhere close to wanting to surrender their life to the Lord, but they'll talk to you about the life of Christ as a model for us to be able to, to live after, but then at the other side of their mouth, rejecting that he's God. So we have to be careful of this. Everything that we're going to read tonight, there's going to be four things, and the first is intellectualism. It lends towards our pride and can lead us away from Christ. So if there's someone that comes along and they say, you know what, that's great that you're a Christian, it's great that you trust the Bible, that's great that you believe in Christ, but that's only going to work for a certain portion of your life. You really need to set Christ aside and here, accept this tradition of men. Accept this philosophy of men. See how it could cheat you? See how it could spoil you from the things of Christ? How many of our young people, our high school students, our college students, are being convinced out of a faith in Jesus Christ by the empty philosophies of this world? Intellectualism. And I'm not saying that Christianity's stupid. I'm not saying that the Bible's dumb. I'm not saying that you check your mind at the door. But what I am saying is that the wisdom of God is greater than the foolishness of men. And we think our way through the scriptures, we see the truth of scriptures, and then we run everything else that man puts at us through the filter of scripture, not the other way around. So we go on, and we look at verse 9. For in him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Teaching of the day, trying to take away from the fullness of Christ. We find those two words again, in him. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. A very clear statement of the deity of Christ. 
And in fact, in Christ, we have the fullness of the Father and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's God. He also walked this earth as man, the mystery of the incarnation. And you are complete in him who is the head of all spiritual power, all principality and power, every authority. He is the head over all of that. Now, do we believe that about Christ? Again, we're talking about position. We're talking about who we are. We're talking about that identity stamp. I'm complete in him. Because if I'm complete in him, and he's the fullness of the Godhead bodily, then I don't have to look to the empty traditions of this world to try to fulfill me. I can take them for what they're worth. I can find the truth inside of it. If there's no truth, I can, I can reject it because I'm complete in Christ. If you're looking for some intellectual endeavor to complete you, it's not going to. It's only Christ that is going to complete us. If we're looking to our bright ideas in order to find identity and confidence, we're missing the ability to be complete in the Lord. You are complete in him. Everything that you're looking for is in Christ. You can't get greater than Christ. And it seems to be that's what the church of Colossae is being tempted to look past and to look to other things to try to complete them. Verse 11, in him you also circumcised with circumcision made without hands. Praise the Lord. It's the circumcision without hands. By putting off the body of, there was a little joke in there for you if you missed it. (laughs) By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The Judaizers were coming in and saying, look, unless you're circumcised, you're not legitimate with God. And here Paul's saying, the moment that you receive Christ as your Savior, in him you were circumcised. So we begin to see all of these things of our position in Christ. In him is all wisdom and knowledge. In him we're complete. And now in him you're circumcised. What was the objective of God giving circumcision to the nation of Israel? It was an outward sign to represent what had happened in their hearts that their hearts have been marked by God, that the flesh has been cut away. It was never just to be an outward religious symbol. And the moment that we trusted Christ for our Savior, it says, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It was through Christ's death and resurrection that sin was dealt with in our lives. That the penalty of sin was paid for, that the power of sin was broken, And Paul goes on to describe that. He says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. Position in Christ As you trust Christ for salvation, at that moment, you are buried with Christ. Why is that significant? Because all of our sins were buried with Christ. Then we are raised with Christ in newness of life. To where our sins, it's told, it's declared to us, having forgiven, notice it, all your trespasses. Does the Bible really mean all? Because it feels like some. God, I can accept your forgiveness for 
these sets of sins, but these other sets of sins, I'm still struggling to really receive and believe your forgiveness. God touched our hearts. God changed us from from the inside out. Do you picture yourself, do you understand, if you're a believer, what took place? This is your position. You're buried with Christ. You're risen in newness of life. The gospel includes the burial of Christ. I was reading in 1 Corinthians 15 this week where it tells us the gospel. It says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. When I quote that verse, I always leave out the burial of Christ. You've probably heard me do it a hundred times. But the burial of Christ is part of the gospel. Why? Because our sinful nature was nailed to the cross then our sinful nature was buried, stayed there. We were raised with Christ in newness of life. So the burial is a very important part of the work of Christ and the gospel as well. To describe the forgiveness that we enjoy in verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he'd taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So you can picture it. You've got the law. The law is there to point us to Christ, our need to Christ. And here's this handwriting against all of us. Areas that we broke the law. And it started very early. The law says, honor your father and mother. And God began to write the list for me as I was not honoring my father and mother. Thou shalt not steal. And the Lord was writing the list that was contrary to me. That was my my list of punishment. I mean, it really begins very early in our lives. And those are cognitive decisions. We knew better. We're like, okay, I'm going to steal this. Okay, I'm going to disrespect my parents. I have murder in my heart towards my brother as an eight-year-old. I'm just lacking the means, right? So it, it really starts to rack up against us very quickly. There's a lot on this list throughout, throughout our lives. And it says that the handwriting of requirements that was against us was wiped out by the blood of Jesus. It's contrary to us. It's taken out of the way, having nailed to the cross. What could do that? What has the power to be able to remove our sin in order for us to be forgiven? Is it intellectualism? Is it legalism? Is it mysticism? Is it the things that we're going to see as an alternative in this text? No way. There's no school of thought that could change my heart from the inside out. There's no spiritual experience apart from Christ that could cause me to enjoy the forgiveness of sins. This is something that only Jesus could provide, and thankfully he has provided it. Victory in verse 15, this is part of our position in Christ having disarmed principalities and powers, he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the spiritual realm. This is the demons. This is Satan. Principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is part of the finished work of the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of darkness was defeated. And notice from verse 15, it's already done. He's made a public spectacle. The original readers are living under the Roman Empire. The generals would go in and conquer a city. 
come back to Rome, bringing all of the spoils as well as those that they had defeated, those that they had conquered, and they would make a public spectacle of them. So that's the imagery here. God has completely defeated and humiliated the enemy. We have to understand that we fight from a position of victory. Jesus is light. And as he is in our lives, darkness is dispelled. So we don't have to be in that place of defeat, but we know that Christ has won the victory. We're spending some time in Mark today as well, preparing for for the weekend. Jesus teaches in the synagogue in Capernaum. A man's demon possessed. Jesus casts out the demon, just tells him to be quiet. Like, that's enough out of you. You be muzzled. And the demon could do nothing. The demon was powerless. Christ's the light of the world, casting out the darkness. But then it's interesting there in Mark chapter 1, as it said, he goes throughout the region teaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. In all the synagogues, there were demons. Satan goes to church. He likes to go to church. Likes to mess with people at church. Likes to oppose Jesus right there in the synagogue as he's teaching the word. And Jesus casts out all of these demons, showing his power over the demonic realm. We see legalism in verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. So not only were they saying you have to be circumcised, but they were coming in and saying, look, it's great that you trust Christ for salvation, but if you want to go deeper in your relationship with Christ, you really need to observe the Sabbath as they did in the Old Testament. And did you know that the Sabbath starts Friday at sundown until Saturday at sundown? So unless you do that religiously with dedication, you are really not following Christ. And you're really not prepared to deal with sin in your lives. You need to get serious about this. Oh, your church meets on Sunday? They don't, they don't meet on Saturday? They're not observing the Sabbath? Well, you can tell them we do have a Saturday night service as well. But it's not for that reason, I've got to tell you. And begin to judge you in those things. And if you're not prepared with Colossians, they're going to sideswipe you. And then they're going to start to throw in the festivals, the feasts that God gave to the children of Israel. And it'll usually begin with something that's really fascinating. Did you know that each of the feasts point to Christ and are fulfilled in Christ? Oh, I didn't realize that. That's awesome. That's wonderful. And if you really want to understand Christ in a greater way, then you need to celebrate these feasts. And that's where it usually starts. But then it goes on to a little bit more legalism. You're you're a little bit better than the rest of the Gentile churches that don't celebrate the feasts. And I'm glad that you've come into the fold. And I'm glad that you've had this understanding. And welcome, welcome to the club. Now, is there freedom in Christ to celebrate the Sabbath as it is in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Is there freedom to celebrate the feasts, rejoicing in Christ in the fulfillment? Absolutely. But it's wrong when you start to make it a requirement for salvation and sanctification. That this is the way that you grow in Christ, is by observing the law. Because Jesus set us free from the law. Then you might have someone that wants to judge you in food. Like, really? Is that bacon on your burger? Don't you know what the Old Testament says about bacon on your burger? 
yeah, I know what it says, and there's freedom in Christ, right? You're not, you, can't, you can't judge me on this. This isn't an issue of my relationship with Christ because we're free in the Lord. Now, we need to be careful. We don't want to stumble people. The, the scripture addresses that, and if that's someone's conviction, and they're doing it not out of legalism but to honor the Lord, then I don't, I don't need to flaunt my bacon in front of them, right? I want to consider, consider them. But at the same time, I can't, I can't allow them to, to judge me or make me feel like I am, am not following Christ because I'm not observing these things. Now, what is legalism by definition? It's adding to the word of God. We need to be careful that we don't add to the word of God or take away from the word of God. To take away from God's word is license. We're giving license where God doesn't give license. We don't want to do that. God makes it clear in the New Covenant and the New Testament that we have this freedom. If he didn't make that clear, then it would be wrong to to declare it. And we can form legalism in other ways, can't we? Maybe we've got this issue straight with the law and Sabbaths and festivals, but we'll do it in other ways. In generations past, what, what was it? You can't play cards. If you play cards... That's the devil's workshop right there, right? Because usually cards are connected with gambling, and before you know it, you've gambled away your whole paycheck. Well, you could play cards without gambling. I always try to get people to bet money when they're playing me cards, but they'll never do it. Not really. It's just a joke that I do at the beginning of a card game. I'm like, hey, so you want to put five bucks on this each just to make it a little more interesting? And then everybody laughs, and then I lose, and I'm really glad that I didn't do it, but... No, I don't bet on cards, okay? <sighs> but I, I do enjoy playing cards. And does the Bible address playing cards? It doesn't. So to put that burden on people that, hey, look, you, you can't play cards, that, that's legalism. So we need to be careful that, that we don't put that on others or we don't put that on, on ourselves. Please note this section of Scripture because walk with the Lord long enough and you're going to meet this group of people that are going to try to take you back to the law. It's still a group that's very alive and well. And if you're not careful before you know it, you're going to find yourself very twisted in this legalism. Here's the point, verse 17. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So these things that are mentioned in verse 16 were a shadow pointing to the reality of Christ when he would come. So the Sabbath is what? It's pointing to the fulfillment in Jesus. Our rest is found in Jesus. The feasts are pointing to what? They're pointing to Jesus. So if I am fixed on the feasts and fixed on the Sabbath, I'm embracing the shadow without enjoying the substance. I've missed the whole entire point. Maybe you've heard me share this before, but if Amber comes home from a trip and it's a nice warm summer day and I haven't seen her for a while and there's her shadow on the sidewalk and I start embracing her shadow be like what's wrong with you your wife's standing right there you're a moron like embrace your wife well I I just appreciate the shadow so much and if you don't like the shadow you're not really following Christ right what's wrong with you the shadow's where it's at you're like what's wrong with you no and that, that's the key here, is that we don't get caught up with the shadow. We embrace the substance, was, which is Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, 
taking delight in false humility and worshiping angels, indulging into those things which they have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So there was intellectualism, there was legalism, but now there's mysticism. Again, there's this warning, don't let someone cheat you, don't let someone spoil you by delighting in false humility. Why is it false humility? Because they're walking around acting humble that they've had this spiritual experience, but it's an experience that's not based in the reality of Jesus or of Scripture. There's a lot of people having a lot of spiritual experiences that are betting their whole life on that, their whole belief system on this experience that they've had, to the point of worshiping angels. Now, we get caught up in angels, don't we? We get excited about about angels. What if I told you that today, while I was here at the church, that I saw an angel, that an angel came and talked to me and protected me and revealed all this stuff to me. All of a sudden, you guys are like, whoa, man, an angel. He's talking about an angel. We've got stories about it, books about it, movies about it. Angels, right? But then we go, hey, look, let's talk about John 3.16. What? Huh? Jesus? There's something about angels, isn't there? Now, angels are cool, but what are they? They're ministering to believers. They're ministering spirits un, unto believers. How do you think it could be dangerous to worship angels? Satan's a fallen angel, isn't he? He comes as an angel of light. We find angels in the book of Revelation with John. John gets kind of his wires crossed, and he wants to worship an angel. And what does the angel do? Wait a second. No, don't worship me. I'm just the messenger. You need to worship God. But there's this putting trust, clout in the spiritual experience and false humility, and that happens with mysticism. There's an over-elevation of experience, and there's a diminishing of Jesus, and there's a diminishing of truth. Test yourself on this. If you had a really deep spiritual experience and it wasn't biblical, would you be able to throw it out? Oh, but it felt so good. I mean, I felt my grandma right there in that moment. She was right there with me. Well, did she tell you something wrong about Jesus? Well, yeah. Well, then throw it out. Grandma was trash talking, you know. <laughs> but I could, I could smell the apple pie as she was talking, you know. And she told me that Jesus wants me to be happy. That's what she told me. Well, she lied to you. Move on, right? But it was a spiritual experience. See how if we put the feelings and the emotion and experience at the forefront of the cart, how it could lead us astray and cheat us from from Christ. Now that I've offended your grandma, I'm moving on to verse 19. And not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God, not holding on to the head, holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Christ is the one who is the head, who has supremacy. So always look at the end of the thought, intellectualism, the end of the philosophy, the end of the legalism, the end of the mysticism, and is it pointing to Jesus? And most of the time it's not. 
It's pointing to the pride of thought. It's pointing to the pride of behavior. Look at how moral I am. Look at all these things that that I can do and I'm better than someone else. Look at my spiritual experience that I had, but it's not pointing to Jesus. If it's from the Lord, it's going to point to Jesus Christ. And then notice what happens. All the body is nourished and knit together. Joints and ligaments grows with the increase that's from God. That's what happens when we're connected to Jesus. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of this world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? We're dead to the world's philosophies. We don't have to live according to the world's philosophies. Isn't that freeing? The traditions of the world? So the traditions of the world think you're foolish. They think you're backwards. Think you don't understand anything. That's okay. We're dead to those things because of our position in Christ. The last thing that's addressed is asceticism. So there's intellectualism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And you're saying, what's an ascetic? It's someone who, desi- who denies all of the physical comforts. The physical comforts of this life are all bad. And you're more right with God if you reject them. And they're the ones that imply these types of things. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Now that sounds pretty spiritual at first. Like I'm really dedicated to God because I don't touch and I don't taste and I don't handle and I I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do, right? You just kind of just put it all out there. But in the nature of God as a father, inside of a holy context, if we're not abusing what he's created, isn't he most glorified when we enjoy his creation? Like if God's created an apple, why do you think he made it? To eat it. Go, oh, God's good. He really, really has done a great job on this apple. But the ascetic would say, you only, only can eat lima beans. If you really love God, that's all you're going to eat. And it's not an issue of health. This isn't done out of trying to be more healthy. This is done out of trying to be more holy. What? You used God's money to go up and go snowboarding and go skiing? Do you know the prices of the snowboard ticket? If you really love God, you wouldn't go snowboarding. You would give that money to orphans who are dying in poverty. Oh man, I feel like a complete loser. Like, what in the world am I doing? Before you know it, you could feel that way, couldn't you? Now, if God leads you to do that, that's entirely different. But he might actually lead you to go snowboarding. I believe as Christians, we could be up there snowboarding, enjoying it more than anybody else on the mountain because we know our Father who created it. Cruising down, telling people about Jesus. I have some friends where their daughter got saved as a 16-year-old on a lift going up the mountain. They got, you know, how on lifts sometimes you don't end up with your family. So she ended up with someone else right in front of them. He starts sharing the gospel with her. By the time she gets off, she's saved. That guy should not have bought a lift ticket, you know? (laughs) He was up there enjoying the Lord. He was open to to what the Spirit was doing in his life. But the ascetic person's going to say, don't touch, don't handle, don't enjoy what God has created. I'm not speaking in a sinful context. I'm speaking of enjoying God's creation to his pleasure. In verse 22, which all concern the things which perish with the using according to the commandments of the doctrine of men. So 
All these things are dealing with stuff that perishes. The snow melts. The apple dies. And it's according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. What was wrong with the Pharisees? They're more committed to the doctrines of men than the teaching of God, than the doctrines of God and the word of God. It's easy for us to get that confused. This is really fascinating in verse 23, and we'll be done. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So they look good. They look, people will look on and go, wow, you're really living a wise life. You're really following after the Lord. But it's self-imposed religion. It's not what God has commanded. It's not what God has placed upon us. It's false humility again. It's, it's look at me. I live a life of poverty for the gospel. I'm a minimalist for the gospel. Now, if you want to be a minimalist because you don't want stuff, praise the Lord. But don't think that being a minimalist makes you necessarily more Christ-like. A minimalist is someone that says, I'm going to make my life as simple as possible. It's really popular right now. And so now it becomes an issue of holiness because I've got the least amount of stuff, so I'm the most holy. Let's think about that for just a moment. What if... God blessed you with a fairly nice-sized house, and you used it for ministry. There's houses throughout the Bible that are used to touch people's lives for all of eternity. Is it really a matter of holiness, the size of your house? Not at all. It's the attitude that you have about the house. We can have the wrong attitude with six square feet, or 600 square feet, or fill in the blank, right? So it really challenges our thinking. It's false humility, the neglect of the body, but then it has no value of the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't result in being able to overcome the temptation of sin. Have self-imposed rules that are extra-biblical ever helped you overcome sin? Never. What has helped you overcome sin? A vibrant relationship with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not that God's not concerned about holiness, but he's not concerned about going through it through legalism, through intellectualism, through mysticism or asceticism because it leaves him out of the equation. If there's a transformation that's happened in our lives because of a set of rules that we followed, who gets the glory? Ah, you know? And you should do like, you know. But if we're broken sinners, walking in the way that we've received Christ, and we go, man, if you, would, if you knew me, I'm a dirt clod. I'm a sinful mess. Now, if there's any good thing that's happened in my life, any holiness that's happened in my life, it's because of Christ. It's because Christ has lived in and through me. And relationship will always go further than rules. And when we're connected to Christ and in that position of Christ, then we respond. We go, wow, God, I really do desire to live for you. Great section of scripture. I encourage you to pray through it and see how God would want you to apply it. Let's stand together and let's pray and enjoy communion tonight.
Father, we thank you so much that you have accepted us, forgiven us, that all of our sin has been wiped away, that this handwriting against us, that you've given your son, his death, his resurrection, so that we could be forgiven. We ask as we celebrate communion tonight that our position in Christ, that we would know who we are in you. We know who you are, Jesus, and the gracious position that you've given to us. And may that provide the necessary protection. Help us to see these things when they come at us and really be able to decipher them so that we're not cheated. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.